Hey everyone, it's your boy Woody Woodbeck and welcome to an all new episode of What's Up Woody, the podcast that tackles all the things and has real conversations. My guest this week, none other than Jay Rodriguez. He is one of the original members of the Fab Five from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and he's currently starring in Billy Eichner's Bros um, out in theaters now. Jay truly is just an all around great guy with a heart of gold and I really truly hope you enjoy our chat. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Woody Woodbeck and at what's underscore up Woody on Instagram. And of course, what's up Woody one on Twitter for all the things about this podcast and past episodes, check out what's up Woody.com. Here's my conversation with Jay Rodriguez. Hi. Hello friend. <laughs> can you hear me? I can very well. How are you? Doing well. Oh, you look good. Thanks. I feel like I knew you so well, but I feel like I learned so much more about you because I did like a little bit of show prep. <laughs> and also, well, like, yeah, I, I mean, we should that. talk about we should talk about that because that is part of the curse of queer eye. How so? Um, well, you know, queer eye erased my theatrical pedigree because the strongest messaging was that I was a part of a superhero makeover cast and we were not the stars of the show. The straight guy was the star of the show. And so that was our focus. And so our show was incredibly funny and the byproduct of the ending of the show being emotional came as an utter shock. We did not anticipate making an emotional show at all we laughed when the straight the first straight guy got emotional with us because we didn't anticipate it because again it was the first time we're making it and we came at it with comedy because most of us are just you know kind of quick-witted tom myself uh carson i would say leaders of that you know i come from an improvisational comedy kind of behind the scenes broadway sensibility and we're always you know, one-upping each other with one-liners or trying to get each other on stage. And so that was just an extension of that for me. I didn't know that post-Queer Eye, I would have such a difficult time transitioning back. I had, I would say, three iconic roles on stage prior to Queer Eye. One, obviously, Angel and Rent. So Drag Queen, okay, not that far of a stretch. It's the 90s. It's still a little taboo back then. Then I had a play at Lincoln Center called Spinning Into Butter, where I played a straight kid who has a professor using microaggressions against him. And the whole play is about racism on a college campus. Then I did Zana Don't, which was a non-binary student in this high school that had magical matchmaking powers. And that musical became like a cult phenomenon. It's been done all around the world. But those three projects, pretty progressive for that time and gave me a false sense of what the world looked like because I thought every space I would be in would be multi-ethnic and multicultural and even shows like Rent that have clear and definitive leads. We bowed together and no one got an individual bow. So when I moved to Los Angeles post Queer Eye, the show hadn't been canceled yet. We just finished, they shortened our order to end us on episode 100. So we put two and two together and knew we weren't coming back. And that was like June or July of 2006. And I believe it was July. And so I came to Los Angeles to do a project. I liked it here, did not go back to New York and instead hired a company to box and ship my things because I was scared that if I went back and did it myself, I wouldn't stay. And boy, was it such a curse that I had been on Queer Eye because it was a double wham, triple whammy. 
queer, quadruple if you had Latin, um, on a reality show. I had not, I, while I was famous from television, um, for that moment in time, it was not for the thing that I did for a living like the other guys. So unlike the other gentlemen, my career did not see a boost. Everyone else's did because it amplified what they organically did on the show. And I think the biggest, that's why I kind of throw, threw myself into philanthropy and working with different charities, being hands-on, not just walking a red carpet, but actually being part of the process. Because I felt like if you have a platform, it's not about the commerce, it's really about what are you using it for? And so that's why, you know, it's it's sad because if you, in the days of, of social media, you can post something about a charity you're super passionate about, but the thirst trap shirtless picture is always gonna get more likes than engagement. Yeah, it's so interesting to me about how sometimes at the height of fame, you you would think that the fruits of that would be far exceed anything you ever expected, right? We hear it time and time again, like, oh, everything's going to happen to us once you're on the show or once you get this platform. And then sometimes they're, from what I tell from the people that I know, they can be incredibly unfulfilling. I thought that once I did a certain number of roles or kinds of roles, play the straight guy, play the doctor, play the lawyer, play the male escort for women on, these are all network credits on, popular episodic shows that there would just be some switch and people would say like oh my god he's a strong actor but i realized with episodic tv unless you're a fan of that specific show you often miss it and so people will often um stop me and be like oh my god i loved you on queer eye and i'm thinking 19 years ago good for you for having that memory and then they'll be like what have you been up to and i'm like you want my hundreds of credits since? Like, that's weird. Not weird, but like, I have, I allow grace for it because I'm like, of course, there's so many people that I used to love when I loved them and I didn't personally keep up with their career. <clears throat> so when I see them and I'm working with them as a colleague, I don't know what they've done since the thing I loved right, them for right. has passed. Um, but also the one thing that we also have to look at is Think about early 2000s queer representation or LGBT representation. The, I'll just name a few. Queer as folk, L word, will and grace. Just Let's just name those three. The majority of those people were either white or straight in leading roles. And the BIPOC folks in queer as folk were straight. Um, and so there was a handful of BIPOC actors who were out. Let's remember Sean Hayes was not out of the closet when in the beginning of Will and Grace, when Queer Eye was on the air, and while I'm sure friends, family, and people guessed or assumed he wasn't, it limited the opportunities that we um, had because most queer stories that were being told centered around white couples. We still see it today. In fact, with most of the projects that I, I get to perform in, it still centers around a white couple. We have the exceptions. We have with love on Amazon, we had love Victor, but of course, Michael, the lead character, uh, the lead actor was straight. Um, so there are pops in there. And I think people get confused when we use the word diversity because they see us. What they often don't get to see is BIPOC folks being at the center, specifically BIPOC queer folks. There's a change in the shift that happening. And when people um, get anxious or nervous when I say those words or it makes them feel a kind of way, it's my lived experience. I have 25 years, October 20th, 1997 was my first day of rent. So I have 25 years of seeing the ins and outs of the industry represented at one of the largest agencies for television performers in the world. And so I see the breakdowns, I can read the character descriptions. 
I know the scripts. I know the auditions I've been on. I know the language that was used to get me to be one way or another that people on TikTok would find offensive today. I know the language post-Queer Eye, you know, uh, or during Queer Eye. I remember, this is a funny story, Woody, you'll think you'll appreciate. So the people who make a show like Queer Eye, they have agents too. And they were very keen when the show took off to have us sign at their agency, essentially meaning the talent and the producers mm -hmm. would all be under one umbrella. And I'm sure from a, as a producer, that would have really benefited them. But as talent, we had anxieties around, you know, what that would mean for us. Like, would they stop us from potential opportunities? Would the opportunities that came our way also, you know, have to be split with producers? Like, we wanted independent careers because we were also different and didn't want to just be a unit all the time. And then we sat down for a meeting and uh, they gave us the big horse and pony show, made us feel really special, and then individually segregated like segmented us to agents that would work specifically for us. And when I sat down with this specific agent to talk about my pedigree as an actor, how I'd done soaps and I'd done a major motion picture called The New Guy and um, my stage work as an actor was really important to me and that I had reviews from Ben Brantley for the New York Times about my performances specifically, he looked at me blankly and said, you're, you're Latin, you're gay. I'm sorry, I, I don't know what you think is gonna happen for you. You're not gonna be the next Antonio Banderas. He just looked at me so blankly. And when he said that it was fall to fall, so it was probably August or, or July, cause we were here in LA, so maybe fall 2003. I can't tell you how many times that voice has like been loud in my ear over the past 19 years. And with each career accomplishment, or something that goes against that, um, you know, I, I see how much things have changed, but also the power of perseverance when you know what you're capable of, even though someone may doubt you. Hmm. Hmm. What did that, when it, I have so much, so many questions. But, <laughs> Sorry, uh, just there, loaded you up good. <laughs> you, you did, you did. But and I, I, you know, I hear stories like that often, you know, because I think that unfortunately, we're still fighting for this equal treatment, uh, especially in entertainment um, yeah. community. But hearing that at that time, like, did you think like, shit, did I make a mistake? Like, yes. was this, was this right? Like, so oh. the creator of the show when, when it first got huge and overwhelming, which means the production offices had to tr probably triple capacity, more employees had to be hired, talent needed to be, um, managed in a way that would make sense for the show it wasn't it was suddenly bigger and there was a lot of anxiety and stress and there was a meeting where one of the producers said this is a moving train if you want to get off get off now and when i tell you my hand i was it felt so heavy but i wanted to raise it and say i want to leave the show um because i could feel the a, I thought this was on an ensemble show and it wasn't. Um, I was constantly unimpressed being put furthest away from the interviewer. Or if we did magazines, which is not the producer's fault, any kind of press, um, when you'd open it up, they would constantly put me in the seam. So like, you know, I was basically the low man on the totem pole. I was young. I was, you know, 24 probably at this time. Um, but I knew the community and that I represented, you know, 
the being Puerto Rican and being on a show like this, I didn't really know many other people like me outside of Guillermo Diaz and Wilson Cruz who were able to make strides in Hollywood, not just to show visibility, but to be able to tell our stories. Growing up, I don't I don't remember having a whole lot of folks in entertainment that looked like me. And I, I can't tell you, you hear people say that a lot, but imagine you never did. Imagine you, you you're living in a time in a world and maybe you've experienced this if you're listening to us now, where you just it just wasn't there. And you kind of just get really used to it. But when you get an opportunity to tell stories and you have people stopping you, sharing how impactful it is to them to see themselves represented in a small way, because you're never going to represent everybody, you feel like a certain obligation to do whatever you can behind the scenes to make that known. And so, yeah, I mean, of course, I think also being the youngest in a, in a very charismatic group of men who were experts in their field trying to find my voice and and the biggest lesson i needed to learn which carson taught me without trying was being okay taking up space even if you're not wanted there or even if people push back on it or even if people feel uncomfortable by your mere presence or existence that you standing in your truth confidently generally people back down or they at least create a little bit more room for you. And if they don't, you know, create room for you, you create it yourself. You know, I was listening to an interview um, and it was Star Jones talking to Sherry Shepard. And she said, I'm the kind of person that if there's not, you know, when you get a seat at the table, it, you know, you slide a scooch over to let other people in on that table too and give them opportunities. And Wilson Cruz told me this. I wonder if he remembers this. He said, a job for one of us is a job for all of us. It's kind of how we congratulate each other on jobs that um, we might have been up for or just that we're just proud of each other, respectively, for getting that job. I, I, every time Wilson Cruz gets some big job, whether it's Star Trek or many of his other accomplishments, I do feel a sense of pride. Like, I, I do. Um, Guillermo Diaz included, just because those are the two people I can think of that I looked up to when I was starting my career now I have so many ep episodic television credits, but when I first moved here, I, I didn't in the scripted space, but they did. And I, I just always held out hope that if it could happen for them, that I too could be a storyteller. I had the talent, I had the the resume, now it was about having the opportunity. Um, I, I mean, I know both of those gentlemen and I, and I do have to say, you know, as somebody white, when I think of three <laughs> Latin queer actors, you guys are the three that I think of. And, yeah, um, and this is a, thankfully, listen, well, Billy Porter, and this is how my brain works. I hear people who came before me and I hold on to their sage words. Billy Porter said, it's, it's very rare, and I'm paraphrasing, that you get to reap the benefits of the trail that you helped blaze. So mm -hmm. while people consider us trailblazers, for me, there was not a whole lot of financial equity you know, most of my guys got seven figure ish deals, endorsement deals at the time and book deals. I couldn't find a literary agent to touch me. Uh, commercial agents would say things like, what are we going to have you go out for? Like Taco Bell? Like they just, it was so limiting. Mm -hmm. And the language that they used back then by today's standards just wouldn't fly. But when right. I turn on a TV and I see shows like Queer Spoke or many other programs where I see like in my mind to, in, to personalize it, little baby Jay Rodriguez is, who are getting lead roles, who are getting product endorsements, who are getting equity in their creativity, meaning they get paid for their worth. 
that is progress. I didn't see it back then. You know, it's just a different time with social media. You know, I got to spend a little time with Karamo this summer and saw his place and I was like, ooh, this is not original Queer Eye money. This is some good, <laughs> and, and, but Karamo like deserves it. He's such an incredibly hard worker and the culture category is one of the most indescript categories on Queer Eye and being a, a, a replacement on the show myself, you know, I understand that it was very vague, even from a directorial standpoint of what we would do each week. And I'm so glad that they hired someone with this sort of mental health pedigree because it allows him to go against a lot of the things that I had to do, which were have tangible things. You have to give the guy something. We need to see something. You can't just have a conversation or any of the other things that you know now have shifted. What, what I love most about this new group of guys on Queer Eye is that they said, no, I don't wanna do that about a lot of things. And I've talked to them about this because they knew themselves and they knew what would work for them, which allowed them to create a show that is completely different than the original using, you know, by the way, people always say queer for the straight guy. We legally dropped for the straight guy after season one and we became just queer eye. But it's funny that even the producers now say, well, queer for the straight guy. I'm like, y'all in, in like, hammered it down after season during season two we're just queer eye now. it's just queer eye like that people forget about that but even you know all the marketing and everything it was just queer eye after that point but but what's fascinating about these new gentlemen is like and it warms my heart just to see how they're able to not just carve out a space for them in entertainment but have equity in their work which allows them to pursue their passions and their philanthropic efforts and their visibility i mean the fact that Karama has a daytime talk show, in my opinion, is like long overdue. Um, and, you know, product line, all the things that they have done so beautifully. I mean, I use JVN's hair care products. You know, <laughs> like, you know I, I just didn't have those opportunities back then. Um, many, of, many of, much of that was because of my identity. Um, but I was also really young, so I didn't know how to push back on no's at that time in my life. I just was like, oh, okay, guess not, you know, and... And then, to be honest, I was scared to pursue anything queer I related, Woody, because it, it had already pigeonholed me so much that mm -hmm. when I moved to L.A., I took it off my resume, grew my beard out the way I always wanted one, got the tattoos I always wanted. People don't know, but when you're in TV and film, you have to ask permission to alter your body. And so, you know, I was not allowed to have a beard on Queer Eye. And so when I came here, I, did, I just discovered who I was. And I started from scratch, and it was actually Ryan Murphy who cast me in my first big guest star on a show called Nip Tuck. And yeah, and the character name that I played was the title of the episode. And it, it opened doors because I had been on that one show. People were like, oh, okay, we'll see him for this. And then it was constant, even to this day, the surprise, Woody. The su shock and surprise. Anytime someone during the pandemic mainly stumbles across some of my dramatic work or, you know, The Rookie, The Resident, Grey's Anatomy, now bros. Uncoupled, I think, feels pretty close to, I think, how people see me, um, even though I think that was a little more camp than, than how I normally am. Right. But it was really bros, The Resident, Uncoupled, um, Bones, like things where I play a little bit more of a, a darker character or perhaps something mm -hmm. that's a little juicier.
Sure. I, I want to take it back a, a few steps uh, for those that are listening. Um, I I have a very interesting backstory for with Queer Eye. Um, I, I feel like I've told you parts of this over the years that we've known each other, but probably not. But when the original Queer Eye came out, I was on the radio in upstate New York. Um, I had just gotten, I just graduated college. I'd moved back kind of in my hometown. I got a full-time job and I always knew I had this feeling like, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, like I felt always felt like this big, a big fish in a small pond for sure. And, um, these morning show hosts that I happen to be friends with, they offered me a job on air and they called me and they were like, Hey, we want you to be on the morning show. Um, and we have an idea and I was like, okay. And they said, we want you to be openly gay, but we want you to talk about football. And I said, you want me to talk about football? Why do you want me to talk about football? And they're like, well, you know, with the success of Queer Eye, like it would be very funny to have somebody on air talk, like it's openly gay and can really play it up. And you actually know a lot about football and you're actually a big fan. So we could have fun with it. Yeah. And I was like, all right, but like, if I'm going to do it, like I'm going to do it full queer eye. Like I want to like, just make it as gay as possible, <laughs> you know? And they were like, all right, cool. So when I, so because of that, that was a big step for me because I was like, wait a minute, I just agreed to be openly gay on the 50,000 watt radio station. And by the way, just for people who were not alive then, yes. that was a very <laughs> big deal. And people were at that time telling you not to, or maybe it was normalized. So when you're saying this now, it doesn't sound crazy in 2022. It doesn't sound unheard of. But back then, I can't stress enough, that was a bold decision for you. Yes, and I, and I still to this day, think about it and I'm like what a life-changing decision and for my trajectory of my life just in general that was and so when I, I had this opportunity I went on air and I literally I felt as if some weird way shape or form we were walking on the same some kind of weird path like I was able to be my authentic self and received by an audience where I could not go to a grocery store or something where someone didn't know me and was like, oh, I love you on the morning show. Oh, I put money down on that Monday night football game because of what you said. Like, it was wild. And and, and truth be told, I my first episode of my first season of What's Up, Woody, I had the original show hosts on with me. And we re reunited some many years later. And we hadn't been on air since that period of time, which was 2001, 2002, 2003. And I was like, oh, my God what how crazy things have changed but like what what an impact we made and what a bold move we made to do that like mm -hmm. and your show because truthfully i didn't watch will and grace like i and i i queer as folk was the show that changed my life my best friend's mom told me to watch it i watched it i snuck around to watch it mm -hmm. and then your show is like holy shit i'm gonna be best friends with these guys um, I, I, and now I'm friends with half, most of you yeah. and, and that's the craziest thing about it. But I, I don't think I've, I probably have told you, but I don't think I would have had the same path 
if it wasn't for a show like Queer Eye. Okay, let's talk about Woody for a second. So Woody's yes. very, very popular in West Hollywood. He used to like throw a bunch of events and we all would go. And so Woody was a fixture in West Hollywood for a long period of time before he was really actively um, working in television. And stop me when I'm wrong, but you were also throwing this football, I wanna say it was a Super Bowl party, also your birthday party event at this really fancy mansion. If you imagine a Hollywood pool party with gays, that's what it was. Yeah, it's my thirtieth so birthday. Yes, right. And so, so Woody and I, I think, share a commonality that those spaces can sometimes not always be so comfortable. Sometimes here in Correct. LA, you yes. can feel a little bit like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And Woody shared what he just shared in front of like probably a hundred gay guys in speedos um, when he they were like we were like going to sing happy birthday and you're like and I just want to say and you were so sweet and it was so wonderful and it really touched me I mean I was completely like oh my god please don't look at me but like because <laughs> um, it gets so embarrassed but it was but but I I when people ask like how do you feel about like you know the guys left the show and then went into their genres and made all this money and are like homeowners and all those like like the commerce for me comes from the impact it had on people's lives. Thank God I was a part of growing up my my I was a part of a church that would on the weekends we would feed feed people experiencing homelessness. That was my normal on the weekend. I didn't do kids things. Then I get rent and it's all about fundraising for HIV AIDS. Then I get queer eye and I'm um, connected to other charities that I can use my queer eye platform to help assist. So the idea of being a service to others has been the through line in the, a lot of the body of, of my work. And so for me, I don't know anything different. Like that to me is like my normal. So I like that. So yes, would I love to come to a place where I'm comfortable sitting pretty on a show that's making bank and like getting these opportunities so I can see how the other half live? Sure. But since my normal is really about just doing the day to day and being a storyteller, no matter what the medium or audience size or platform like I'm good with it. And it's, it's all comes down to that one moment of like, how can you brighten someone's day today? How can you help someone feel seen today? Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I, I say it all the time. I honestly, I'm very grateful and I don't take for granted the uh, relationships I've been able to do through West Hollywood and, and truthfully, and not to blow smoke on my own ass, but like when I started promoting and got into that world, there weren't people like me. Like I like it wasn't just another pretty face and six pack abs. Like I was just a nice guy who happened to be really good at getting people to come to party. Everybody's friend. Yeah. That was what that was the that was the thing. You know, listen, I think anytime you get a, a a concentrated group of individuals that share a commonality in this instance, let's say the I'm gonna say gay because that's what it felt like in the, at that time in those bars, but really the LGBTQ plus community at large, there are subsects of different kinds of, uh, it's very, very segregated at times. And you were the one constant that welcomed everyone. You were everyone's friend, um, which I think at, it, at its core is what we all really want and don't always see made available to us spaces that welcome everyone. And I think you were a symbol of that. And I think that's why everyone just, Love you. You're just a great guy. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, I I wanted to um tell you too. You spoke about Karamo uh, and talking to him, and and you know, you guys in those roles. So I got the pleasure, obviously, as you know, of working on the new Queer Eye. I produced several episodes for the first two seasons, and I remember. I want to tell you one thing and then I'll tell you something else, but I want, because I want to hear what you feel about this. When I went into producing Queer Eye, number one, I was like, holy shit, what a full Oprah full circle moment for me. This is wild. Like 
Uh, this is a show that completely changed my life. And I remember till this day, our first meeting as a whole team, production team with the cast. And I remember they went around and they wanted everyone to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about themselves. And I full on had a quivering lip because all I wanted to do was break down and cry because I was like, oh my God, this is really happening. And, but when I went on to start producing and writing and this and that, it was super stressful for me because I didn't want to let anybody down. And I remember talking with Karamo a lot and, and trying to figure out his place because what I will say is a lot of the times we were told, let's not make Karamo too preachy. Or mm -hmm. let's not let Karamo feel like Oprah or let's not this. We did get told that I'm not going to not say that I didn't. Yeah. I did. And, you know, so finding something tangible for that category when the whole time in my mind, I'm like, just let the man do what he does. Like, and by the way, that's what he's good at. just imagine you get a dossier. It has information about everyone. If you're the hair guy. You have pictures. Right. If you're a hair person, I should say. You have pictures. So you can see a very definitive plan of like, oh, this is the journey. You see the house, you can imagine how to improve it. Closet, you can imagine how to improve it. Food, teach them anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like as long as a good story. When it comes to culture, I can tell you firsthand that even producers would struggle with creative and new ideas that fit with the network um was saying i had to do after a while you just run out of things to do and by the way not every this is the funny thing audiences mm -hmm. don't realize not every person you make over has deficits in all five mm -hmm. areas right right some people got one area one pretty much together and you know so or you know and so you're going through these things and it's frustrating but um clearly it's worked out for them you know because because they are global superstars in a way we never were yeah, I mean, it's it was pretty wild. And, and definitely, I remember saying to myself, why aren't we just allowing him to to play this role of the heart of the show in some ways? Because I feel like in some ways, your role in the original cast was very much so that like you were it yep. wasn't something tangible and physical and transformational that we could see. Here's, but maybe it was a lot more internal than anything. Here's else. what I had. Here's what I had in my favor. I was young. And many of the lessons that the guys were teaching or talking about, I hadn't learned myself. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is my MO was to get buddy-buddy with the guy after he'd get a good comedic beat down from the gentleman about his deficits and kind of bring him under my wing and say, I know, bud, <laughs> me too. I'm learning with you, but there's no failure here. There's just progress to what you say you want help with. And some of these ideas may seem new, but I will give you a tip that directors give us all the time, which is eat the meat and spit out the bones. I'm gonna give you some tips, take what works for you and release what doesn't. And over time, I think that was part of the bond was be able to be more of a wingman as opposed to an educator or someone who is an expert. And I always say, you know, like not everyone is an expert in everything. So if you're a hair expert, you might not be qualified to do all types of hair, or maybe you are, but you have a specialty that is really where you sit. And for me, I kind of came at it where each week I was learning new lessons because sometimes the gentleman would have passions and interests that I didn't know anything about, like taxidermy. Um, you know, and so I, I suddenly I'm researching this stuff to kind of get a better understanding of who they are. So it varies. And I, you know, I, I do think that 
this grouping of individuals, first of all, yes, of course, I am so jealous that we didn't have social media because, you know, that is not just a way to connect with people, you know, and keep them up to date on like your thoughts and your feelings and your connectivity to how they feel about programming, but also just, it also, you know, a way to make money. That is, that is a crazy thing that that is commerce now. Passive income for people who were queer and out in the early 2000s, you know, many of them who we elevated back then are, you know, jumping from project to project or have left the industry because there just yeah. wasn't room for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just really like, my heart is overjoyed, like when I see the success of this, the show and specifically Karamo, I, I feel a bond, obviously, because, you know, I did the, that job 19 years ago now. That's so crazy. I, it I, is uh, weird to think about. Like, I even saying that out loud, I'm like, how did we get here? Like, it's so long yes. ago. Yeah. You know, I remember um, I was sitting in that that, that first meeting uh, and I remember them saying, oh, yeah, and then the show is going to go live in, you know, 80 countries. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, it's going to what? In their languages, <laughs> like, subtitled and what? dubbed. You know, like this is it was wild. It was wild to yeah. me. And and now, you know, and going on to have such accolades now. I mean, it is one of the highlights of my career. Um, I still can't believe, you know, we're in the Emmy fam. And it's it's just one of those things I'm incredibly proud of to be a part of when it comes to the gay history books. You know, honestly, it's that's that's it. It's um yeah. It's one of those great things. So, you know, something I wanted to talk to you about was your was coming at your coming out experience, because I know yours was a little up and down. And, you know, something I read about was you, the reasoning that you got into doing a lot of work to raise money for AIDS and HIV organizations. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, in 19 in the 1990s, uh, my aunt so my my family unit is my my grandmother had three boys and three girls my mom's one of the girls and my aunt um the comedic aunt who got me into entertainment and theater uh auditioning for it helped me book my first job as a 13 year old she had uh also over for thanksgiving dinner and at that thanksgiving dinner it was basically people 16 plus were invited um and the adults and she disclosed that she and one of my two one of her two kids um had aids at this point it was past hiv positive we were at the aids space mm -hmm. um and her health was fast like deteriorating in a fast way her husband had been a veteran and died in the 80s we were told it was cancer and 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 came to find out it was uh aids related cancer i hope wow. i'm using this language right if i'm not not please correct me but so essentially that was something that was in pop culture and in media and in storylines of all, almost every single TV mm -hmm. series. So we mm -hmm. were as teens very educated on um, the stigma around it. We were educated that there needed to be change and help and resources, but fool to think that medicine would treat everyone the same way. My aunt was kind of low income by the time that she got into the hospital and put on a lot of like experimental programs. And as she and one of her two kids who was, you know, a, a nine-year-old, I think at the time, um, would get these treatments and stuff. They would see the kids dropping like flies. And so this was at the time where I think the beginning of protease inhibitors, which became um, sort of a godsend in the 90s, I believe. And, you know, she wasn't a part of that. And unfortunately, you know, whether she was given placebos or not, 
my cousin passed away when he was 10 and my aunt passed away my junior year of high school. Um, so like Boys to Men and Mariah Carey uh, song had just come out and everyone was wearing the AIDS ribbons and, you know, it was a time of visibility for HIV AIDS and Rent comes out. And my high school goes to see it. I go to see Rent for the first time and I couldn't believe they were singing and talking about the subject matter. I became obsessed. That is like spring 1997 by the time I see it. I have no plans to go to college because my mom wasn't going to support anything in the arts. She's very born again Christian. And uh, a, a teacher of mine said, you shut out for rent. I'm like, easier said than done. A week later, someone who graduated from my performing arts high school said, I have an agency. I've never suggested they meet anyone, but I saw you in the senior showcase. You need to meet with them. She hooked me up with an appointment. I met with this woman. She gave me some audition sites to prepare. I did a scene for her, we did a commercial audition. Then she said, can you sing? And I said, yeah. So I sang Glory from Rent. And about two lines in, she picked up the phone and called Bernard Telsey's office, which is the casting director for Rent. And she said, I have this kid in my office. Can you see him today? And they were going that day. I went down there. I auditioned for Rent. And I got a call back on the spot. The agency signed me the next day. And that was in like August, 1997. And I started my first day in rent October 20th, 1997. So 25 years ago, but because I had the lived experience of watching someone in hospice care slowly die from AIDS related complications, I got to see the ugly underbelly of what happens mm -hmm. when a woman is dying of AIDS and how she's treated, specifically a woman of color, how she's not believed, how when I took her to a dentist appointment, the doctor put on three pairs of gloves when it was Mother's Day and my mother brought my aunt an outfit to the hospital so we could take her to church. And she brought her pink sweatpants and a pink sweatshirt and my aunt bust into tears and she said, what's wrong? And she said, you're treating me like a patient, not a person. And just, I carried that with me because there's this song in Rent that the lyrics say, it's called Will I and the lyrics are, Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will someone wake me tomorrow from this nightmare? And I just, I fueled the character of Angel with the joy and the life that my aunt had to like her very last days. It was weird to visit her because she didn't feel sick. She had the visual stigmata of someone that was, you know, at the end of their life, but she didn't, her, her spirit and her joy was ever present. And it made you feel like, you know, you know, you like she was visiting, you know, you were visiting her. Like it was just a very uplifting experience. So that was also when I got rent, how I came out because I sort of was claiming the character and explaining the character to my mother, an evangelical woman, this person who feels comfortable, not only in their own skin, but, you know, um, you know, dressing in drag and, um, and and being so secure in who they are and leading with love and i got to use that as a coming out moment but unfortunately there weren't a lot of depictions of queer folks in media my mom really didn't know anything about that and had a really terrible visceral reaction she took it as an insult i was turning my back on god and if i turned my back on god i was turning my back on her and she didn't want that sickness in her house so, you know, we were estranged for a while. And then when Queer Eye came up, it was embarrassing to be estranged publicly. And we mutually picked up our roles. Um, and my grandmother really more raised my mother and I in the same house until I was 12 as siblings. So when I moved in with my mom at 12, we didn't function like a traditional mother and, uh, mother and son. We functioned, according to a therapist, as equals. 
And my mother put that kind of pressure on me. So I wasn't a kid. So I was always very mature. And, you know, I had to claim being gay at 18 to take this role to my mother. But I had never done anything. Hadn't even been with a guy. The internet was new. It took 47 minutes to get to a picture of a half-naked man. <laughs> you get to the nipple and TRL was on. There was priorities. <laughs> so for me, it was it was claiming something I hadn't done but knew in my spirit that I was this thing. I didn't know how the math worked. I didn't know how, the, how two men could even get together physically because, like you said, the internet was new. And so, you know, I just knew in my core. But I think the people in Rent really raised me. There were so many incredible queer elders that took me onto their wing and so many mother figures that stepped in when my mother stepped out and to this day to be honest i don't have a relationship with my mother she played her role during queer eye i did too i moved to la we became estranged tried working on a relationship but it was hard to build something that was never there to begin with and over the years you know she remarried the year i moved out of the house had a baby started another family and mm. one that you know made better sense for the kind of life she always wanted for herself and I'm sure in her own way, I truly believe she did the best with what she knew. But I don't feel in the moments of panic or chaos or fear, the sense to call my mom because she never provided a sense of safety for me. I had to provide that for her, in my opinion. My experience was I needed to clean up after her emotional messes to people. And she, her maturity level, I did a one night only concert about the story of my life and Rosie Perez played my mother. And when she looked at my coming out scene, which we reenacted, she said, what's your mother's maturity level? Like she hit the nail on the head that my mother, you know, was a bit more immature and that was part of her charm. You know, she's an incredibly char charismatic, caring, charming woman. We just never developed a mother-son relationship. And then, dum-dum-dum, you know, Trump era, and we have the pandemic, and she's very conservative and very um, not science-based. With uh, She doesn't watch the news or, or get outside secular input with television. And, you know, she's just not connected in that way. Uh, the information comes from the pulpit, and I'm not judging her spirituality, but a lot of the things that she believes are just not fact-based in terms of, like, things like, um, you know, who I am or, or what LGBTQ plus people are and who we are. There's still so much judgment and toxicity in it that I had to remove her from my life. And I felt a little guilt about it and shame when I'd share that with others. And the therapist finally said, if this person had exhibited any other kind of behavior or, or wore any other kind of title, but delivered the same behavior, you would have gotten rid of them years ago. But you're guilty because it's your mother, but you didn't have that bond. So I had to do what was best for me and my mental health. And will we at some later point reconnect? Sure, but it wouldn't be a mother-son relationship um, the way maybe other people see it. And that's always tricky. I downplay it. I'll tell you what, you know, Woody, even when I was shooting The Rookie, Nathan Fillion, his parents were in town and he posted a picture with them. And I was like, your parents are so cute. He's like, oh, your parents, they must be so proud of you. My dad left when I was young. I don't know him. Couldn't find him. Tried. And this is the current status of my relationship with my mother. And the shame runs so deep that I literally just said, yeah, they are. And he started asking me questions about my parents. And Woody, I just made it up. Because to, that was 2020, February. And, and the shame runs that deep. And I know, thank God I haven't done that since. But it's even tricky as the holidays approach. And people are like, oh, are you going home for the holidays? And I dance around that topic. Sure. You know, I try not to. 
because it's it's tricky for other people and they will say things like well my mom will be your mom and you know those relationships are short-lived but with the best of intentions like i'm fine and i think one of the be beautiful thing about the queer community is we create a family of choice and family are the people who show up for you yeah i mean i think we spent a few thanksgivings together <laughs> yeah i mean I, jordan's you know, yeah jordan's yes you know i um I, I relate a lot of that with you for a, a long time. My family was, I was raised Italian Catholic and my dad um, and my parents never married. So then my dad became really into the Baptist religion. So uh, talking about two religions that really never saw eye to eye ever, especially on uh, queer culture. And then I, obviously, as I said, you know, coming out in such a huge way, I didn't even give my family time to even think about purchasing a seat on the train i was right. just like this train is leaving the gate and either you're on it or not and um i think that for a long time i can definitely relate on struggling with those relationships because in some ways like i really wanted them and i fought really hard for them with my parents but at the same time i wasn't going to give up who i found made what made me happiest to have them included in that you know mm -hmm. like there had to be a point in time where i was like hold on wait a minute i'm why why is why is there a part of me that's fighting so hard for something that seemingly doesn't mean that much to you um because this makes me happy this is who i am so i i definitely can relate on those things and i'm i'm, I'm lucky but i will say that i do have a relationship with both my parents but it has been a fight you know, to have those relationships and they're not, they're not easy. So I can, definitely... for me, it's like about like, I've had a lot of changes in the past couple of years and it's about, <laughs> you know, the, for, the forgiveness and the, and the idea of releasing any kind of resentments that I could have uh, toward my mother for the childhood. I thought I should have been given it's, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I believe she did her best with what she knew how to do. And um, it's about how much access I want to give her, not complete alienation. And so, you know, I've made it, you know, kind of a mental, um, thank God, you know, I'm, my therapist support on this, but I am going to try to reach out this year in my own time and try to not, um, you know, heal old wounds, but more just kind of allow things to be at peace. Um, there's some folks who just aren't open to engaging in a way that's productive and you have to honor that and so all you can do is share your truth with love and kindness and and i'm going to take it you know day by day um but yeah it's i know that a lot of people out there have similar stories um and it's not bashing your parents which i think you can feel incredibly guilty when you share your story that the fear is you're bashing someone who sacrificed a lot for you and that's that's not the case at all I say um, it, I say it all the time. My parents did the best they could with the tools that they had at that time. And yeah. and I can't fault them for that. Now being their age, you're like, yes. you know, we can yeah. under, understand. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I'm mindful of it. And also I, I'm mindful of like some of the things that were learned behavior about interrelationships. Oh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I'm I'm at least mindful so that I don't kind of repeat the same behaviors and bring them into my personal relationships and friendships and such.
There have been a ton of things along your career that are like such moments that like I remember and they have nothing to do with me, <laughs> but like, like I want to talk about a bunch of them. So when you got the call to be in the fucking Lady Gaga Beyonce video, what was going through your mind? So that was the same day kind of call. The phone rang at 9 a.m. It was my manager. They said Beyonce's team is called, I believe it was Beyonce's team, and they want you to play a reporter in this music video with her and Gaga. Now, you know, working or being around Beyonce was not new for me. Um, I, this was the first time working. I wouldn't even say with, but you know, at the same location and same vibe because yeah. we were presenters at the 2003 VMAs when she yes. won her first solo award. And so she wins for Crazy in Love, best female music video. First By the time. way, that was also the year for Madonna, Britney, and Christina yes. Aguilera kiss. I and remember. if you watch that video, they pan to us. And there yes. was a little flip camera filming them. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was, I, I, we, we, she wins the award, we're backstage, and she's, I, I remember her repeating over and over again, I can't believe this. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so happy to meet you. She's like, I'm so happy to meet you. So we're around the same age. Beyonce and I were in the same age grouping. And I think I'm like a year or two older, but she and I, you know, kind of bonded a little bit. And then shortly after we did this, um, this benefit for Katie Couric's colonoscopy thing on the Queen Mary 2 that um, there was a concert in the theater there. Beyonce was the headliner. We were singing a song with Whoopi Goldberg. Um, so I got to hang out with Beyonce a little bit back then. And then I saw her at like big in 2003. It was another award show a month later. So I kept seeing her around and about. And so I knew her team and stuff. And then we would go to like different Beyonce concerts. We'd just fly to different locations and her tour manager would put us front row and she would like throw towels and stuff at us, uh, which was really fun. And in my mind, I was like, oh, we're like backstage friends. Um, and, you know, but like after a while and I left Queer, I just wasn't doing so many big backstage events and such. And so this is like years later. I leave Queer in 2006. I think it's like four years later, maybe 2010 or 11. And I get this call in the morning. They're like, you know, they want you to be in this video. And I was like, well, what kind of is it? They're like, they're not releasing the creative. All they said is you're playing a reporter. So bring suits from MTV reporter all the way to late night reporter. So I did. And I, they put me in a trailer, like a trailer. There's like one, two, three trailers for talent. Beyonce has hers. Gaga has hers. And Tyrese has, uh, he's sharing a double banger with me. So that's two, uh, one big yeah. trailer that's divided in two. Sure. And I'm like, this is wild. So the AD does not know me, what I am. Just, I'm just hanging around. But during, so they're just like, just chill. We're going to get to you in a little bit. I was like, okay. I go through hair and makeup. They approve my suit, but it's really hot. It's in Palmdale. And the girls are working. It's in this like, you know, this set that is used to be a gas station motel and diner. And they're just working and I'm sitting down outside on a lawn chair, like between the trailers and the set. And after shooting the dance sequence in the diner, Beyonce's crossing and she's all sweating. She's like, oh my God, hi. And she runs over to me and hugs me. At this point, she's a little bit more Beyonce right. than she was back in 2003. Right, right. So it hit me a little different. I was like, oh my God, this, this woman that I ran around with. And one of the things I remember most was we were in London and it was around 2005, whatever the girls, the Destiny Child girls had their final tour. And this still is a great memory for me. They were at Virgin Megastore doing a signing and we were staying at the same hotel as their tour manager. And he was like, we want to surprise them with you. So me and Kyan went to the Virgin Mega store. They ushered us in and the girls were sitting at these 
kids' desks, like the reading area for little children. Yeah. Just looking like Bratz dolls with huge hair because it was that era <laughs> and these sparkly outfits. And I was like, hi. And they all ran to me to give me a hug. That's and so that cute. was so sweet. And then a year later, I do celebrity duets and Michelle Williams and I were paired and from Destiny's Child. And she was like, ah, because we already knew each other. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it happened. And the funny part is they thought I was a real reporter. And so they were like, okay, so can we get your copy? And I was like, copy about what? And I was like, I haven't seen a script. They give me a script. They show me an outline and they say, so we need you to report on what they did. And I was like, okay, sure. Typical actor who gets in and over his head. I call my agent. They're like, well, I don't know, write something. So I call my friend who's a newscaster uh, or a reporter, I should say. And I was like, how would you frame if this incident happened and he was like here at the scene of the crime police are still trying to put the pieces together of what appears to be a mass homicide so i just verbatim wrote what he said gave it to the ad who showed introduced me to the director who was a huge queer eye fan or knew me he's like oh my god you're a big girl like, oh, hi and yeah, he in a director's chair and i didn't meet gaga we were like i didn't introduce myself she was right there i didn't introduce myself but i already said hi to beyonce on the last shot of the day, you see, if you freeze frame the three seconds I'm in the music video, you see that where I'm reporting is literally a video village. There's a blue and white tent with yeah. like cables and stuff, but it looks just, you know, chaotic behind me. But they, you, they called two weeks later and like, can we use his real name on screen? And we were like, yes. So the telephone long video, eight minute video, uh, toward the end of the video, you see me reporting my real name on screen, and that's how it happened. That is amazing. I love that story. Yeah. By the way, isn't Michelle Williams one of the nicest people in the world? So lovely and nice, and I wonder if any of them would remember me. There's people I, I used to run around with or at least met and hung out with a couple times, like J-Lo and Beyonce. Yeah. I wonder if they would, like, remember me now. You know, I keep thinking I'm going to end up doing something with J-Lo because we're both Puerto Rican and actors yeah. and... You know, I, I always end up working with these big stars, and so I'm, yeah. I'm always wondering. If You're not a Virgo, are you? I am not. We already we covered that when we met. I'm All not. right, you're good. Good. <laughs> Lovely not. to hear. I'm the cancer. <laughs> so another big thing. Yeah. I know you are a lamb. You are a big Mariah fan, as am I. Um, what do you what What is your favorite song by Mariah? Let's just talk about this. So the reason why Woody is saying this is because I was the first guy I dated in 2006. He he was a trainer. He trained uh, the woman who worked opposite Ryan Seacrest for the morning show, the radio show. Yes. She did, she didn't want to go to Mariah. We took the tickets. I ended up front row with the same camera crew that shot me in celebrity duets. Now shooting Mariah's concert, so they kept panning to me. Sure, and you're and, all up in the live. <laughs> and I had to like really, and I I was in gym clothes, like I was not prepared to be on camera or anything. And it, I had to play the role of the number one lamb because I knew the camera was up in my freaking grill. Um, I love Mariah Carey from Vision of Love to yeah. obviously her holiday stuff. I also personally love when she just talks. There's a work session she had with Brandy where they're kind of tweaking a, a, a Mariah. Yeah. yeah, that kind of stuff is to me, Mariah at her finest. I know she likes the glam. I know she likes her lighting, but what I love is the person underneath all of that. We're so encouraged to be so manufactured and yeah. be glam. Um, and there are moments even within that for Mariah where she gets incredibly vulnerable and talks about 
all the things we didn't see because we were so focused on a wind machine or her lashes mm-hmm. and and the vocals. But there was a woman who who went through a lot of different struggles that I wouldn't have known about when I was busy praising her music and her talent. You know, I, I have a crazy Mariah story um, that I want to share because I think you'll appreciate it. So I get a call from my friend, Chrissy, who works for Dick Clark. And we're, and she's like, hey, I need somebody yeah. last minute. Somebody canceled on me. I need a talent producer to come in and work with me on New Year's Eve in Times Square. And I was like, oh, OK, no problem. I happen to be in New York. I didn't have any New Year's plans. She was like, OK, great. The next day she calls me and she's like, you're going to be Mariah's producer. And I was like, hold on, wait a minute. Excuse me. She's like, you're going to be Mariah Carey's producer. This is the good year. This isn't the bad year. This is the year of redemption. Yes. So I I mentally prepare myself for three days. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be Mariah's producer. I spend the day, we go to sound check. Like I'm, I'm the, basically they had rented this whole floor in this hotel for her and her manager comes out at the time and it's like midday. She just got a massage and her manager is like, oh, um, Mariah wants to get some food from TGI Fridays which was right across the street from the hotel. And I said, all right, cool. Look look at the menu. Let me know what you guys want. I'll send a PA to go and get it. She's like, no, no, Mariah wants to go to TJ Fridays. And I said, uh, hold on. Mariah wants to go to TJ Fridays in the middle of Times Square on New Year's Eve. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Um, We want to leave in 10 minutes. (laughs) I call my boss. My boss is like, I'm telling my boss and I just hear silence. And I'm like, Chrissy, are you, are you there? And she's like, what do you, what do you mean? She wants to go to TJ Fridays. I'm like, girl, I don't know. Make it happen. I'll be in the lobby in 10 minutes. We go literally go me, Brian, her, her brother, um, their family, two security guards. We walk into TJ Fridays. It's literally like a record had scratched and stopped. Everyone's like, oh my God. We go in the back, we sit by the kitchen, we share some mozzarella sticks, and then we go back and it was right back to work. And I literally, at the end of that day, my boss goes to me, did you ever think that you'd spend New Year's Eve in a TJ Fridays eating mozzarella sticks from Mariah Carey? And I was like, sure. No, definitely brilliant. not. So <laughs> definitely brilliant. not. <laughs> definitely not. I love it. Yeah. So you also, you also got to work with another huge music star uh, with Reba McIntyre. I mean, hello. I, what, yeah. So that experience was probably one of your favorites. I feel like you talk about yeah, it with such reverence. I do because it was the first time a male reality star, um, you know, had sort of beat the curse of you can't transition to scripted television as a series regular. And um, ABC Disney gave me a shot. I, you know, I tested against other guys and made it past studio and network and Reba's approval and finally get the sitcom, family sitcom on ABC. And it is uh, me, Reba, Lily Tomlin, Sarah Rue, comedy giants, all of them. Yeah, huge. And I was able to hold my own with them. And it was a really groundbreaking experience because it kind of, it, it erased that voice of that agent who said, you'll never be the next Antonio Banderas. Because I thought that meant that I would never work and have the ability to make a career for myself as an actor. And here I was holding my own with people opposite Lily who were like, you're just fantastic. But that job working with these icons led to Kelly Clarkson hiring me to be in her Christmas movie called Kelly Clarkson's Cautionary Christmas Tale, where she plays a diva version of herself. And the story is the story of like Scrooge. And she's sort of a Scrooge character. And I play her assistant, Chad who she boots out and me and my little sister. I remember this. What was this, what was this on? This is for Wrapped in Red, her album, and it was on NBC. Oh, that's right. I remember that. She's yep. an NBC girl. She got she a big sure old is. development deal over there. And so, so, you know, I actually thought after Malibu Country, the, 
VP of programming and the head of casting, I can't remember who exactly it was at ABC, called me in for a big meeting. And Woody, I thought I was getting the Sofia Vergara whole deal. I thought, <laughs> they love my character. They're going to pay me to sit pretty and not take any other work until I you know, get something going with them. And they called me in and they wanted me to come back with programming that would be right for me. So they're like, tell us a bit about you. What do you want to do next? The show is not continuing after this year. What do you want? And I told them and then they were like, partner with a Latin or queer showrunner and bring us something that only you could star in. And I went out and I've been searching ever since for someone who has the credits because you need them and someone who has a shared like passion to tell the stories I want to tell. It is really hard because the diverse queer folks that um, are, are out there, many of them are working um, and several of them who are talented and are incredibly gifted have never run a show before or had a show sold. Sure. So you can't get the job unless you had the job which is a weird, vicious cycle. Um, but I think we're seeing the importance of having more visibility in stories. Do I always feel the need to have to play a queer person? No, I don't at all, as seen in bros. But I will say that, you know, when we look at Joel Kim and Billy Eichner, people who are able to, at this station in their life, create vehicles for themselves, that's kind of what I want to do next. But it's really, for me, partnering with um you know a judd apatow type because it, unfortunately it does take a massive champion in your corner to get your project off the ground and thankfully i have so many writers who've submitted projects several of which i've partnered with that were taken out of the pitch and the one thing is who's the a-list director attached who's the blah 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 and you know thankfully now i can actually sit down with folks and ask 25 years in the business i don't have a scene that uh i i have a lot of different um, kinds of roles I've played. So people are like, yeah, but he's never, and we're like, hold on, we'll send it. You know, right, I have. Right. And so I just want to get in that space of, I feel like an original content kind of guy where I, you know, I want to create a series um, from my point of view um, and have that be supported the way Billy and Joel Kim did with Fire Island so beautifully, which was kind of my experience of Fire Island when I went, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's time. And I think for those saying, well, you know, why can't we just leave good enough alone? We see gay people everywhere. Sure, but you know that we are a huge, huge umbrella of our of our community that still has not been seen or explored. You know, Latin folks, um, you know, we're the second largest, I think, ethnic group in the in the U.S. And yet, you know, it's it's tricky to get our projects off the ground and sold. Um, so, you know, there's still some work to be done. But I, I was really moved by just Reba saying, "When you came in, you auditioned. I knew it was you." That was really I mean, yeah, special. That that's a that's a seal of approval for sure. Yeah, for sure. and she's so good right now on Big Sky. If you haven't seen it on ABC, she is playing anti-type on Big Sky. She's playing opposite of what we know her for. Yes, um, you know I, I wanted to mention a couple other things. I loved you when you were in Kingdom. Kingdom opposite Nick Jonas. Yes. I do have a thing for working with musicians. Yeah, uh, apparently, apparently. How what was that experience like? So I was meant to come in as a love interest, but they thought it was unethical because he'd already had an affair with another physician. Um, and so they shifted the storyline to kind of, he was this broken MMA fighter that I was openly out and me just talking authentically about my life to my uh, patient, him, 
that that would trigger something with him that he wanted to be more authentic uh, about who he was. That was kind of what I was doing, but he had not released jealous yet. So to me, he was just the boy from the Jonas Brothers. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. That's yeah. so cute. He like, is gonna release some music. Like, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, where I was in the studio. I was like, oh. Meanwhile, then yeah. jealous hits and I'm like the biggest Nick Jonas groupie. I would go to his shows and, and he'd be like, what do you want to hear next? And I'd scream a song and like, who said that? And then, and then he, I'd be like, me. And he's like, oh, of course, Jay. <laughs> um, so, no, I loved him. He was great. And he was really easy to work with, especially in the scenes that kind of staged us in a somewhat homoerotic way for stretching and deliberately so. And I would do it last minute because I would be so nervous. To, and he was like, you're fine. You know, he was very mm -hmm. respectful of the process. And um, just a solid guy, incredibly talented, humble. That's great. You know, I, I do want to talk about bros, but I cannot not mention Uncoupled. I absolutely freaking loved this series. Do you know what's weird about these shows that many of you are seeing now? We don't go into casting sessions anymore. We don't meet casting directors. We don't right. drive somewhere and go into an office. Everything's done on your personal like iPhone or your camera. You audition at home, maybe with a reader, or in my case for Uncoupled and Bros, I did it with a pre-recorded version that I put in my voice notes, connected it to Bluetooth. That was the other lines. I wow. press play, press play on my phone, have my camera shooting me and have a scene with no one else in the room <laughs> until I got it right. And that's how I booked Bros. That's how I booked Uncoupled. And, you know, I, I have this like Patreon that I kind of show the behind the scenes of my life. So they knew about all this stuff um, like a year ago when I was doing it. But it's amazing to me that this is the new normal. Um, you know, I just had a callback for this big Netflix movie, found out yesterday, I didn't get it, but um, it was a massive drama opposite huge A-listers. And I had a callback in a work session and I was like, this is so weird. And she was like, I know it's so weird to see you guys because we you know, only do this for like callbacks when it's an adjustment. Um, and, and most of the time, if we see something, you know, that we figure we can fix it on set and we don't, we just offer the roles. Uh, and then we fix it on set. But this instance, they want to see everyone making this one adjustment that they made last minute. But that human connection we miss. However, flip side is, you know, when you were like recording your voice, the outgoing message on your phone or mm -hmm. whatever it was, you did it a couple times. When you're in a live in-person audition, it's on them. If, they, if they're like, no, we're good, you leave. But right. at home, we get to you do, can it, do it again. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so let's, just, let's talk about Uncoupled. So Neil Patrick Harris has a series. Darren Starr, Creative Sex in the City. <laughs> I was auditioning for um, like uh, an episode that shot two days. It was going to be when I was already in New York because they only wanted New York actors. They were not flying people in. And it was going to be on my off days from Bros. I was like, great, I'll do both. I'm already here. Bros is paying for the hotel and the flights. I'm already here. I auditioned for Uncoupled on my cell phone that was on a trash bin that was sitting on top of a coffee table in the hotel room. I send the audition tape in, I book the job, and they moved the shoot days to when I was no longer in New York. So I had to fly myself out and put myself up. And then they added two more episodes, so I needed to do that three more times, um, which was fine. Uh, but I don't know about whether or not the show will come back. I'm hopeful it does, but also I'm not guaranteed to come back because even though I'm depicted as one of Neil's close friends that he's a standing poker game with and that my husband and I have uh, a son who Neil is the godfather of, we were just guest stars, like recurring guest stars. So there's no guarantee for us if the show comes back that we'll be invited back. But, you know, I hope so. They left so many loose ends at the final episode of season one that 
they could they could come back and tell that story and you know neil is a global superstar and um and i would be i would be so thrilled to come back you know it's so interesting the programming you know we talk about this a lot i'm i'm working on um in the deep deep south and you know we're producing the show and kind of breaking the format of traditional reality tv and and the way that we're shooting it is, and it's just things are so different and we're doing things differently but it is so interesting that in our day to day where we're like talk about oh breaking that mold and our fear of breaking that mold and how even though now we've seen, you know, we've probably a hundred times over the amount of queer characters in programming today, there is still that like, oh, are we sure this is going to work? Is it worth taking the risk? Is it, are we sure we can have that person of color who's also queer play a lead character? Like, I, I, I find it almost mind boggling to me that that is still something that we are bumping against. So I think a lot of times the people in decision-making positions have a clear visual idea of what a leading person looks like. And so when they're casting, they get an idea of not necessarily who can do it, but who comes to mind because they've always seen them do that. So it's, it's not always, can someone carry this show? It is, who do I know that's done this a million times already? And so that's hard to get progress that way. But I will say, I think people are really aware um, of any kind of um, critiques around uh, not just adding folks of color, but giving them s stories that center around them, giving them something to do, not just inviting them to have a line here or there. And I, and I speak generally about a lot of the programs that claim to have a lot of diversity. You know, you also need to make sure that the persons, uh, th that the character, the actors are having something to actually do that contributes to the story. Mm -hmm. um, that to me is like more of the inclusivity people want to see. It's not enough to just have trans and non-binary folks there, but like, just don't have them as just the add-on. We did that with like, when we started in incorporating diversity in television. It was like, oh, the, the sassy friend who'd be a person of color or the gay friend, you know, the little drive-by roles. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm thankful for all the work I get and it's not to poo-poo anything, but it's also that I recognize after 25 years I, and, and the intersectionality of all I represent, I have to say these words because if I don't say it, who else is going to that has this kind of, you know, history in entertainment, it's important, you know? And I think while people are aware, it's still a challenge for them to re-tool um, their thinking, but they have to. I decided better myself. I want to let's move into bros because I have right. a lot to say, honey. Uh, uh, because I, well, I, I let's start. How did this role for you? And for those listening, bros is out in theaters now. Go and see it. Um, uh, Billy Eichner wrote, uh, produced stars in this movie. It's so fantastic. It's, um, and correct me if I say anything wrong. The first um, LGBTQ rom-com backed by a major studio. Um, and Judd Apatow is one of the producers who's done everything and anything. And the director also did Forgiving Sarah Marshall, I believe, right? Yeah, get and yeah. get him to the Greek. So I think, yes. you know, the language is always tricky because some people in the community, like, for instance, I think, like, Searchlight made Fire Island in for association sure. with Disney, and but that was yeah. streaming. So I always like to say it's one of the first all LGBTQ rom-coms right. played by, by an entirely LGBTQ correct. plus cast. Yes. 
to be in uh, theaters nationwide, yes. over 3,000 yes. theaters. So yes. rom-coms are tricky. It's a tricky sell. They don't do well internationally because a lot of our Americanisms don't translate culturally to other cultures. So that's why you saw a dip in rom-coms in general being made. I think one of the most successful ones is like movies, one of my favorites, Crazy Rich Asians. So, but there's a dip in why they're not made as much as they used to be made in the sort of, you know, Julia Roberts uh, land of it all. Um, so Billy Eichner writes this great script with Nicholas Stoller, who you gave his credits, and then they partner with Judd Apatow, I don't know the order in which that happened, as a vehicle for Billy. Billy plays Bobby, a character very closely related to his own experience. Judd, I believe, from what it was being reported, um, said, we're going to hire movie stars like Chris Evans or whatever to play your love interest. And Billy said no. They had done that for budding stars like Billy Eichner before. Pad them with A-listers, then raises that person's mm -hmm. visibility and, and clout in the industry. Billy said, I don't want to do that. I want to make a movie that features all out LGBTQ plus performers, whether or not they're famous or box office sellers or not. And some of the critiques I've seen on TikTok and stuff from people who have not seen the movie thought it would do be better if they had A-list actors um, in these roles, forgetting that, how are you defining A-list? Because I'm defining it as trailblazers, of which we have many, from right. Amanda Beers, who came out during Married with Children in the 90s and lost everything, to Guillermo Diaz, person who starred in Stonewall, the movie that I saw in the 90s. So, you know, there's a lot of different um, ways to look at it. But the way that the movie came together for me was I got an audition to play Luke McFarland's character, December 2020. And I was like, I am not a CrossFit guy. There is no way in hell that my body will give the perception that I'm on steroids like this character is. And so I begrudgingly sent the audition. Now, my agents always remind me is you are not auditioning for this role. You're not even auditioning for this project. You're auditioning for casting. Mm -hmm. For, for what you can do as an actor. If it's not this project, they'll consider you for the next one. Start advice, so, start advice. So then July, 2021 hits, I audition. They, they reach out and they're like, hey, you auditioned for this project before, this is casting, but Jay, we'd like to see you for another role. They send this via my agent. And can you affect the same bro -y accent you used the first time? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is my normal. Um, no, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, like my Long Island, my sort of coding accent that I used to get by and for safety when I was younger. So I did that and I was obsessed with how the tape came out. I thought it felt grounded. It felt real. I felt my audition was good. And I felt such sorrow that I was sending this in and it was gonna be a waste of time because there was no way a big producer like Judd Apatow would ever green light me in a straight bro-y role, even though it was good because I'm sure someone on his team would be like, oh, but he's like a big old gay. And that's what my, the story I had built for myself. And that turned out to not be the case. I did not know, nor did any of us know, by the, at the time of my casting that it was going to be an entirely LGBTQ plus cast that wasn't released until after I already had the part. Sure. So I did not know. And when I got the role, I pulled, I, my agents called me and I pulled over and I wept because it was all the years of, of no's that agent who said I'd never be the next Antonio, but sure. you know, he came to mind and all these other people. And even though originally I had three big scenes in the movie, now it's cut down to two, but you'll see the deleted scene later. Um, you know, it, Nicholas overshoots. It's a comedy, so he has more on the page than what's going to make it into the movie. It's still a leading role. That's what my contract says. That's how I'm billed. And the title card I share with Bowen Yang, 
before the scroll of everyone in the movie. And that is a special experience for me because it's the first time that's happened for me. I've, you know, I, I've had the great pleasure of doing a lot of indie queer films and, and queer projects, but, you know, generally is a supporting character. And so this was the first time in a major motion picture that people from all over are, are texting me from other countries. It's opening up in Australia. Um, I think on the 27th and I think the red carpet event is next week. And so I'm getting messages from people who know, um, it is a hilarious movie from beginning to end that focuses around an LGBTQ plus museum that Billy is sort of overseeing and trying to get off the ground. He, I think a lot of people find his character, Billy on the street, kind of tough to kind of stomach. And I expected him to be that way in real life. And instead I found a kind and generous and humble, soft-spoken man behind the scenes. That's what I encountered on set. And um, I was not prepared for that because I was expecting Billy on the street. In the movie, he plays more of that character, but you see his humanity so much, the character's humanity. And there is a scene, a beach scene, where I feel, I don't know, but I feel that it goes from Bobby to Billy sharing his real life experiences. And I related to that character, um, all the many knows because of who you are, not because of your talent and, and, and how that impacts you emotionally and how you present yourself to others and ultimately how you treat others and how you, how you see them treating you and how we write our own stories um, about that and how it impacts us. That really moved me. Um, there's so many incredible performances, so many people who might not be familiar faces who hopefully now will be um, and, you know, I think this is a stepping stone if we allow it to be. You know, I, the, the hoopla, as I have been calling it about bros uh, post opening weekend was in so many ways for me, very disheartening. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why at a moment in LGBTQ queer history, we could not just celebrate something for even just the weekend without trying to rip it to shreds. It did not, I did not understand it. I didn't get it. I, when I talked about it with people, I said, you know, this was the same internalized feeling I had when we were remaking Queer Eye. I was like, oh my God, are the gays going to like it? Because the gays are, you know, they're, they're not the nicest people in the world when they don't like something. They're and Billy, and Billy in, in one of the early scenes, you know, Billy says that when he's pitching the movie. And it's like, not yes. all gays are nice. And we are, we are everything. Every community is everything, meaning like we share all the human emotions and all the human experiences. And some of them are great and some of them are not. That's just kind of how we are, you know? Yeah, like, and it, it, yeah it was. And so it, I get my thought was, is I remember and I wrote, you know, for me, Billy's character is me in a lot of ways. I'm a 40 something. I'm not quite sure if I've ever really experienced love. I'm also in an instant moment can talk myself out of being in love. Um, and also, um, you know, and not being able to allow myself to be vulnerable. And I, and I, and like, as you said, I saw all of that in him. So I, I definitely did feel that at times, both Luke and Billy had developed such a relationship in real life that even though they were playing characters on the screen, there was a moment of being gay men and, and their authentic vulnerable selves really were able to come through in the characters that were playing. And truthfully, it kind of saw it across the board in a lot of ways. And in, in some ways 
with the characters. I, I honestly, I absolutely love the film. I, I remember what I cried twice during the movie, the bridge scene. I cried. I couldn't not cry. That's yeah. Um, but I remember leaving the theater and there were uh, seven people in the theater when I went to see it. Cause I saw it at a matinee on like my one day off and uh, I was leaving and I saw this straight couple just like hug each other, you know, walk out. And I was like, Oh, you, you came to the theater and paid $9 to see me on the screen. And it was the first time that I really ever felt that way about something. Yeah, we get invited to do movies as queer, queer actors and we play different roles. But when we have, when we're in a relationship, usually it's not explored. We're just at a cocktail party and you see our partner, but you mm -hmm. don't know the underbelly, the good, bad, and the ugly, unless it's an indie film. And so this kind of separated that a little bit. I will say it's off the heels of so many other incredible artists and content creators throughout the years who have been trying to get these stories yeah. um, produced with this kind of a budget. Um, you know, and a lot of the, the critiques that people had, many of the people who had negative critiques we're coming from a place of um, I'm not seeing this because and I and I'm fine with criticism on anything I work on. It's just part of creating art. But I would prefer that people see something and then rip it to shreds because then you have like a you know, you're coming from a place of knowledge. And you could be specific. Um, I, I understand that, you know, specifically my inbox was flooded with messages and, and texts and stuff from people of color who um, felt like we'd seen this movie before and you know while i echo those sentence sentiments in, in in many ways the flip side is is that i also can hold space for the fact that this is monumental for um the bipoc queer folks who are in this movie lgbtq plus people who are in yeah. this movie who now have the opportunity and the credit to get their projects made where it's more centered around them so progress in one hand and also yes it's also you have to understand um, you know, that this person had the opportunity and the means and people right. are not likely, you know, one of the biggest thing is you're not a box office movie star. You're not going to get people to come see you is a, is a, is a messaging point that a lot of actors are told and is what is considered when giving someone a leading role in a movie. And I think with Biz Billy's visibility and popularity and sort of being a household name, um, I think that coupled with the fact he's an exceptional writer and a great actor in this film. Um, that's why this movie was made. And I'm really happy and proud to be a part of it because when the dust settles, it'll be remembered as an incredibly hilarious movie that opened doors for other movies like it. You know, the, the, the dialogue or the narrative for me that I felt got lost was how hard Billy worked to make this project happen. And I think that I under, and I completely understand struggles for, you know, the minorities within our minority are all different and there are battles that we fight. Mm -hmm. And I understand I'm completely aware of what white privilege is. And I understand that a lot of the times there's a lot more seats at the table for people like Billy and myself. And I get that. But yeah. what I felt was lost was the fact that he still had to work hard. He still had to prove himself and he still had mm -hmm. to sell this project to people to get it made. And he still stood his ground against the big studio and probably producers that were telling him otherwise to not cast an all LGBTQ yeah. cast. And to me, exactly. that is what was getting lost in the hubbub of, oh, he's not good for this role. And oh, who I can't stand him. And then people who didn't even see the movie, I was like, hold on, wait a minute. You haven't even seen the fucking thing. 
Like, go and right. see the movie and then have an opinion for me, will you please? Because I'll tell you, a lot of people that saw it the second the second weekend are like, okay, this movie actually was well, well done. Yeah, that, so that's what bothered me. For context, you know, we if we want to talk numbers. Opening weekend took in three point eight million with thirty three hundred theaters showing it, and here just in the U.S., it cost twenty two million to make. Um, our our second weekend, uh, it remained in over three thousand screens, took in two point one million. Um, even though that's about you know a half drop um, sure. at large, you know it. Um, it took in which uh, about $9 million, but it has not streamed anywhere beyond the US and it launches soon in the UK and everywhere else. And so for me, I like, I don't even look at those analytics. It's not like a part of my normal because I'm like, I don't know, yeah. it doesn't impact me. Sure. But, um, and I, I, I didn't even think, never even occurred to me when all the reviewers were reviewing it because it universally got majority of views critically acclaimed yeah right but reviews. it never dawned on me to also be anticipating box office sales because i live in such a streamer world i'm not a movie sure. goer sure. i purposefully wait till it's streaming so i'm not a key demographic that would normally go see a bros i personally would wait in this instance now i'm reminded of you know the warrior queen all these other projects that we made of importance how it's important to go show my support with my dollars in a theater because of the message that sends. Um, and there are movies and projects in production now that will air next year. So when we talk about progress, we don't know what the future holds because it's either in production now or yeah. it's being talked about being made for years from now. So right. yeah, I mean, listen, I, I would love the opportunity to work with Judd Apatow again, hell, even Billy again, because I just think he's an incredible writer and I, and I and I'm I'm I can't imagine, and I'm sending him so much love, of what it must feel like to, you know, he's someone who speaks his mind. Some people agree with it, some people don't. I'm not a person that like shows my hand the way Billy does. Um, I'm kind of a little more shy with that stuff. But you know, we have we all have big emotions, and some of us feel comfortable releasing it regardless of what people think about it. I pro it probably benefit me to get some of that out of me, even if it's just to a friend. But I will say, I know the passion and the drive and the commitment he had um, to making this project. And, you know, I got to see that firsthand and I'm hoping to take pieces of that strength with me as I pitch original content myself. Well, I look forward to that. And I, I, I truth be told that you are probably one of the hardest working people I know. I know that you have been in this business for a long time, not just because you are a grinder and a hustler, but because you are a good person. And I feel like, you know, oh, God puts you in the places you're meant to be for a certain reason. I want to, before we wrap things up, I want to have a little fun. Um, and I want to do what I've been calling Woody's Roundup, which is just a couple of little hot topics. And I want to throw okay. them out there and I want to see what you think. Okay. Okay. So right. I have always been a person that's like, I want my like divas or whomever to do a duets album. Like I'm all for the collaborations. We've seen collaborations work. We saw, um, you know, we've seen it in the past with Mariah Whitney. We've seen it, Barbra yeah. Streisand put out a whole album of duets. Like what would be your dream duet? Well, first of all, Rihanna and anyone, because I miss her as a, like an vocalist. I mean, I love me some Fenty in every which way, but I, Rihanna and anyone, um, you know, someone was mentioning that maybe Madonna and Britney should go on tour. That's a concert I would see. I don't know if I want like another single from them or anything, but I'm just so curious about what that would look like. Um, oh gosh. Um, 
God, I, I feel like I'm so Doja Cat and Rihanna, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, what would that look like? I know that Nicki Minaj and Adele have been teasing us, saying that there's something coming. I mean, I'd be curious to see that too. Yeah. I'm kind of, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of, I kind of take my page off of like what TikTok tells me to listen to. And then I download on Spotify or add it to my list. Yeah. 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 I, in, mine was actually very funny. One of my, the biggest ones. Well, I really want to hear Kelly Clarkson and Pink do something together. I oh think that yeah. Long overdue. Amazing. Long overdue. I don't know. I'm just I'm like, come on, that's, that's gotta happen. That's written in the books. I don't know why, but you know, the other day, Sam Smith was on Watch Rabbins live on Bravo. And he said, one of his dreams was to be do a Christmas song with Mariah Carey. That to me would be incredible. Incredible. Think would about that. Voguing? I don't, I don't know. That Mariah would be funny. Be giving you like <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but he did say it, and he was like, "I could, we could, we'll, let's call Mariah later." And I was like, "See, to me, that is like giving Mariah her flowers." That the this younger people are really like, "Oh my god, I would always." It was the one thing I always said, like the VMAs at its core back in the day were like known for these surprise collaborations and it's what everyone tuned in to watch. And right. all of that luster with that and the Grammys, it really like lacked. And I think it's part of the reason why award shows tank and ratings a lot of times because the unexpected just doesn't exist anymore. People aren't and even to add to add to that, it was usually intergenerational. So Tina Turner and Beyonce, Correct. you would have these sort of, you know, connecting the generations, which kind of brought everyone together. Yeah, so when Mariah invited Ariana Grande and J-Hud to do the Christmas song, I was, like, floored. Like, gay, yeah. like, explosion. I was like, what is actually happening? Because, but, because there is such reverence for people like Mariah in the business that I just wish that more of that would happen, you know? And I think that that, if you want to bring back the VMAs, in my opinion... If you want to bring them back the VMAs to what it used to be, don't give a star a 20-minute set like they've done with Nikki and they did with Justin and they did with Taylor. Bring back these reuniting duets that that make people go, oh, shit. All right. Remember the, Fred Durst and Christina Aguilera? I remember that. Yeah. That was everything. People talked about that all the time. Yeah, the, um, the unexpected pairings that you yes. never knew you wanted. Correct. Even Beyonce and Prince. I mean, that was incredible during on the Grammys. Um, I want to also ask you, what is your opinion on this Adam Levine thing? Because I have an opinion on the Adam Levine thing. Um, my first thought is we don't know the inside of people's relationships. And I have I have uh, been around a couple of big, huge musicians and the people that they dated. And they freely behind the scenes talked about how tricky it was na navigating public speculation about details they just didn't want the public to know but that they, as partners dating the person, were fine with and had given them the green light. DMs and sexting and all that stuff, if they have a relationship where that's not allowed, then it's like cheating and they should deal with it privately or whatever. However, if you're trying for a gotcha moment with someone you've been DMing, little to find out that that person's partner is like, you're fine, I'm doing it too, like it's all good, we have an openness there. That was the first thing that came to mind because um, his wife has stood by his side proudly. Yeah, and and by the way, has said he has said in past interviews that he has cheated before. It's not mm -hmm. like this isn't the first time that he has not he hasn't discussed this before. So I I found it interesting because I I like to me it was almost like people were more mad and making assumptions, which are like the worst thing in the world. I hate assumptions. Um, 
because he there was no proof that he had done anything but simply message these people and everyone was ready to like you know they just tore the poor guy apart i mean these are all adults who willingly got into these relationships maybe under false pretenses but i always assume until you know someone in real life and get to be immersed in that life and get a sense of their character you don't know a person through a dm right 100 percent, or a text for that matter or a text and by the way online profiles are people's projected sense of how they would like to be seen by you and may not align with your experience of them when you're around them so their tinder profile is this is what i think about myself and this is what i'd like you to know about me what i would like you to know about me you hang out with me you might be like i I didn't necessarily find that to be true you know Mm -hmm. is so so who knows we'll see what's happening in your dating life i made a commitment this summer because last year was shooting and i just didn't want to you know the COVID situation so it was height of omicron when i was doing uncoupled so sure. that was not happening and then the spring i did um fantasy island for fox and so that'll air on uh, this year and so it was just being mindful that this summer i was doing daily pop on e and i ended yeah. up getting COVID in august after two and a half years of dodging her and um <laughs> So I've been trying to like go on more dates and be more thoughtful about it. I, it is hard to meet people. Um, I don't really go out to bars and clubs anymore. I don't drink. So it's sure. like there's just limited room and resources other than dating apps. And I think communicating to people up front of what you're looking for. There are people who want add water and instant relationship. I'm not there. I am. Let's grab a coffee. Let's do things together. Spend time and see if there's chemistry because attraction can build. I could be attracted to someone visually and it could fade because some aspects of who they are as a human or how they move through the world bothers me. So, you know, I am, I'm totally single and trying to figure out what the next steps for dating are. I mean, I have interest in people who live in New York, you know, it's like, Mm. and, and Toronto specifically, um, to, to, to two fellows who've said, if you only lived here and just have, you know, good friendship connections with, and, and you get to a certain age of life, um now i'm 43 i hate it but i understand it when people say the word partner i used to hate it i thought it meant asexual like living companion but now i see it as like a like a wing person like a partner in crime to like go through life with and like has your back no matter what you know you're like in metaphoric love business together and and your partner's in this and you know that someone will have your back in all circumstances. When you're younger, that's fleeting and it's, you're almost replaceable because there's a younger, cuter thing right around the corner. At least that's how it felt, not always true. But um, as I get older, I'm looking for a sense of permanency. And so I want someone who, um, you know, is able to uh, be a stable human with passions and something emotionally to offer. What, um, what is your biggest pet peeve? Late, lateness and rudeness to, um, to people. Like being biting or, or being short-tempered with folks um, as opposed to being kind um, is my biggest pet peeve. For that reason, I can't watch shows like Housewives. I never have been a fan. I wish I could be because I know it's a pop culture phenomenon. I don't like watching people behave badly and in situations that i feel like if i were in them i would easily be able to diffuse them or i wouldn't have stirred the pot but there's no value to me in creating those denying those kinds of unnecessary dynamics with a human that you don't care about Um, besides the original queer eye what's your favorite reality show 
I've really been into 90 Day Fiance because of the idea, this fantasy that what if he's not in LA? What if he lives somewhere else? Um, and how open would I be to that? Really, like how open would I be to meeting someone who lives in Sydney um, and having a great relationship and ultimately deciding that my life could take a drastically different turn if I wanted to prioritize love versus my career? What would that look like? And uh, favorite movie of all time? Oh my gosh, I go back and forth. I mean, I the one that I play a lot are the um, Jurassic Park movies. I play those like often. And then for rom-coms, it would be Bridesmaids and Crazy Rich Asians. Those are like the four kind of things that I, if in doubt, I will throw it on if it as background noise or, you know, just comfort. Um, yeah. I have two that, and one of them always surprises people. It's one of them is Moulin Rouge. Cause I just, mm -hmm. I did my senior thesis that. in film school about Baz Luhrmann. I just think his use of lighting and the way he is as a director is unparalleled, but I also yeah. love the original clue. Oh, I like that movie. Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, like just everything done about that. Funny enough, I had been working with an agent, my former agent, about trying to find out like what the rights, like how to buy the rights to Clue. And when we started digging into it, we found out that Ryan Reynolds actually um, optioned it and is going to remake um, that, Makes which sense. is very interesting. Makes Total yes. sense. So what do you have going? What's what's next for you, my friend? Oh, man, I am so unemployed today as we sit here and speak. <laughs> but in my industry, you audition for something on a Thursday that starts working Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to navigate anxieties around having gaps in employment. But gaps in employment as an actor is like the norm. Um, I have things that are about to air. I did two episodes of Nora from Queens with Bowen Yang. I have um, a big guest star on Fantasy Island this next coming season. I, I, they were supposed to set an air date for fall, but I think it's going to be mid-season on Fox, opposite Rosalind Sanchez. Great series, great episode. Um, it's a, it's just a great series. And then, um, and I'm just auditioning like everyone else. It's so funny because you know you test for something, you're pinned for something, you're on hold for something, and you have to keep your schedule open and free. But at the same time, you're like, how am I gonna like book? Me? You know, how am I gonna? You know, sideline work can be tricky. But thank God I have my Patreon, which is basically like the behind the scenes of my life. I might post some sexy pictures to give a wink to OnlyFans, but not do OnlyFans. <laughs> um, my pets. I have like um, Jay tries every week where I try a new thing and I video it. So. It's YouTube vlog style. I've gotten really good with the editing and scoring of stuff. And, and that keeps me busy in that support system of folks who um, kind of help with making decisions in my life. I have this, um, um, my kind of journal on there um, called Inside J, where it's like my visual journal, where I get to be really candid about my emotions around what people see from the outside and how it feels to, to experience it on the, on the real world. Um, and it can be tricky to kind of keep all that in. So I have that as an outlet with this really incredible uh, group of people who have become members. And, you know, I, I, I set the original membership at like five and then there's memberships that are like $50 a month and that's executive producer credit. And they get to make decisions on my life from what I wear to red carpets to all this other stuff. That's so cool. it keeps me busy and creative and, um, you know, at least, uh, at least keeps that sort of muscle flex of like being creative but just auditioning and then have some things down the pipeline that people can see like Nora from Queens and Fantasy Island. Awesome. Um, what uh, your social media handles for those listening? It's at J-A-I Rodriguez on Twitter and Instagram. 
TikTok is at J Rodriguez World, and Facebook is I think J Rodriguez fan page, and it's got a blue check mark. They all have blue check marks, so just find my name with a blue check mark, and it's me. Have it? Have, have you ever found like an imposter account? Yes, all the time. Really? Which is so, so like weird. how are you? And then they're like <laughs> DMing people like, "Thank you for being a fan of mine. Which one of my movies do you like best?" And this is before Bros, when I think I'd only done like three or four, and I was like, <laughs> so. You know, that that's bizarre, but also it's a common name. People have this name. I don't know if it, like uh, from the Philippines, I had a couple of people, like I couldn't have my own name on Instagram until, because someone had it, but then they went inactive for four years. So Instagram finally gave it to me. Um, but yeah, so, but I love the engagement. You know, I've been trying to be better about posting to social media um, because it's just, sometimes it can be such a cesspool of people being mean. Um, you know, there's always something that someone has to say about something. So I try to keep it positive and uplifting while also being authentic and sharing my thoughts on things, even if those thoughts happen to be divisive because people don't feel the same way, you know. You know, you, you and I are falling to that category of having voices that people actually listen to. So I think that if there's a, a blessing of anything that comes from social media is the fact that by sharing our stories um, and who we are genuinely, I think can touch a handful of people like to yeah. me it's that means all the thing all the all of it in the world I, I love that thank you so much for doing my podcast what's up woody i really appreciate you i love you to pieces can you love give you. me uh can you give me a hey it's jay rodriguez and you're listening to what's up woody hey it's jay rodriguez and you're listening to what's up woody thanks boo i'll talk to you thank soon you. Okay, bye. Bye. all right bye